What's up, y'all? Welcome to class. This is Diseducation. My name is Mignon. I'm a Black non-binary teacher. And I'm a Vietnamese-American teacher named Quinn. Together, we are looking at what it's really like inside U.S. classrooms and schools through our eyes as teachers of color. In other words, what's happening behind closed classroom doors? Because the reality is that U.S. education is burning, and students and teachers of color are the ones on fire. This is Diseducation. Last class, we talked about the impact of white supremacy culture on students and staff. Today, we'll discuss how we are uniquely overburdened and overworked as teachers of color. Diseducation focuses on the experiences of teachers of color, but teachers, regardless of racial background, are overburdened in the U.S. public education system. We are in a crisis situation, even as chronic issues in education shape our shared experiences. And there are so many fucking issues. Low teacher pay, parental hegemony, large class sizes, lack of teacher aides, lack of prep time, lack of collaboration time, lack of effective professional development. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) You just had a really shitty experience with that one literally this week, school starting. Oh, I can't even talk about it. And, And uninformed policy. Yeah. And the list goes on, right? There's standardized testing, sick days and sub plans, unpaid work, lunch duty, clubs, school events, out-of-pocket, classroom materials, lack of school safety, cultural devaluation of teachers, mediating conflict that, frankly, should be handled by the administrators, and terrible, terrible leadership. But teachers of color face all of that and then some. We have to take on extra responsibility that white teachers just don't. We get tasked with anything relating to diversity. We have to educate colleagues. We have the onus of building relationships with students of color. The list just goes on for us as well. When you say we have to take on diversity stuff, can you expand on exactly what you mean? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of extra responsibilities, clubs, PDs, but I think one of the ways that I'm thinking about right now is that our extra work can oftentimes show up in lesson planning and designing curriculum. That anything having to do with Black people is being shunted over to me. Mm. Mm -hmm. Can you give some examples? Yeah, when we were working together... (laughs) On a major project. Which one? We've worked on a lot of major projects. Oh, Lord. You'll know the one, my friend. (laughs) When we were working together on a project, tasks like, or topics like school-to-prison pipeline, like gentrification, you're following me now, like land back, were... (laughs) You're not even indigenous. I'm not indigenous. Neither was I. I'm not an expert in gentrification, right? But we were still being tasked with these topics. Yeah. The other thing is, right, so many of these white teachers, they didn't want to bother with these topics. It felt like they were foisting it off on us. Now that people of color are here, white people have a get-out-of-work-free card. That's how it felt. It felt like it was inconvenient for white teachers to be critical of themselves or of systems that benefit them. It felt like our very existence as teachers of color de-incentivizes them from necessary reflection and anti-racist work. And part of that is because so many white teachers view these kinds of topics and subjects as connected to race and class. And because we are racialized to them, they create labor for us. They say, you all need to Mm -hmm. do that because they don't see themselves as racialized people. And meanwhile, they see certain topics, right, as neutral. And they see it as being completely divorced from any connection to race. But that's untrue because anything and everything can be connected back to race. Nothing's ever really neutral. If you think it is, that's just white. 
When I think of topics that to them seem neutral, that they would like to go back to all the time, I'm thinking particularly of environmental topics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they really saw those as being completely divorced from racism, which I think is a big fallacy um, that exists within white supremacy culture. Absolutely. Those monarch butterflies topics. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like teachers would oftentimes use the excuse that, oh, I'm just more interested in this topic, or I feel like I have more knowledge of this topic to avoid teaching about anything that they felt was right too overtly about racism. But these environmental topics, like monarch butterflies, is still connected to race. Oh, can you paint a picture? Six degrees of separation from monarch butterflies to race. So the main issues with monarch butterflies mm -hmm. are when that was a big issue was that monarch butterfly populations were being decimated primarily by pesticide use. In the state of California, pesticide use was largely happening mm. in large agricultural communities. Yeah. Large agricultural communities in California are populated by which demographics to work those fields? Boom. Mm -hmm. We've made it to race. So if we're talking about monarch butterflies, like you get like we are also talking about racialized labor rights. <laughs> I think what all this shows is that the racism just jumped out. Honestly. And so... White teachers aren't just failing to educate themselves, they're actually turning around and creating curriculum that presents an incomplete picture to students who are fully capable of exploring nuance. And the reason that this is important, the reason I believe it's important, is because white teachers make up the majority of professionals in this field. If we're talking about the um, United States teaching force, we're talking 80 to 85%. Force, yes. Vast majority of yeah. teachers are white. When the student population right now is like, I don't know if it's, it's happening already soon. Majority it's already students it's of color. majority students of color. Yep. Yeah. So we need to look at what is happening with white teachers. This kind of failure of many white teachers to engage in nuanced study of social issues or even to acknowledge the way that issues that they are uncomfortable with dealing with are connected to their subject matters, that creates an inequitable workload for teachers of color. Mm -hmm. Because when these white teachers don't do it, it falls on us. We go back. We fill in those missing blanks. Because we know that ignoring how race, how class are impacting students and are impacting the subjects they study is a disservice to those kids. You know, I agree with you, but I will say that I feel like the word disservice actually does a disservice <laughs> in capturing right the consequences that many students face when yeah, they're being kind of severity yeah when the severity exactly when they're being given the you know this incomplete narrative all the time it gives them a false idea of the world they live in mm. it feels like they're being lied to and in so doing being directly harmed absolutely so far you and i have talked at length about how teachers of color are overtapped when it comes to designing curriculum and lesson planning what other ways do you feel like you take on more work as a teacher of color I mean, we could talk clubs, we could talk committees. We know that public education is ultimately built on unpaid labor and overworking teachers, but it's different and worse for teachers of color. You know, I know black teachers, when you walk in a school building, they look at you and say, so you want to advise BSU? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I got that too for Asian American club, indigenous club, where once again, <laughs> neither of us are indigenous. Um, but I think actually the indigenous club bit is like really important to expand on a little bit. Like, for some reason, it's like people think that because we're people of color, we have some kind of head start in understanding other communities or other cultures. The reality is, you know, I ended up saying yes to this advisory position, but I had to put in a lot of work and effort to take on this role responsibly. And quite frankly, any other teacher, including a white teacher, could have done the same and put in the same amount of work. They could have done the same Googling you did. <laughs> yeah, and these are just some of the ways that teachers of color are uniquely overburdened. 
other people's assumptions, like you're talking about, about our racialized position results in them pushing us to take on more work, whether it's in lesson planning, designing curriculum, or advising capacities than our white counterparts have to take on. In addition to taking all this on, teachers of color are also tasked with educating our colleagues on anything and everything related to our heritage and culture. And educating colleagues on issues of race, identity, culture is a unique burden, and it can be really surprising when we're not expecting it. I remember one time I was walking into the school building. It was like 7.45, 7.50 in the morning. Yeah, that's early. It, well, it, look, <laughs> you saying it. It was early. I'm walking in the school building and a teacher who I have never met walks up to me. I didn't even know this teacher's name and says, oh, I was just wondering if you had time to talk to me because I want to learn more about equity. I want to know if you teach me about equity. That's actually so wild. So you've never spoken to her. I did not know this teacher's name. She just like walked up and asked you that? That's crazy. I had not met this teacher. (laughs) But she said, I see a black person. You gonna teach me about equity? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I bet that probably made you feel like really hyper visible, huh? It really, really did. Yeah. It really showed me a couple of things. Number one, that teachers aren't seeking out professional development when they need it, or because, not being given it. Well, because to give her credit, uh, she was identifying an area that she wanted to grow in, right? To give her credit, but she wasn't seeking out resources on her own. She was coming to me. Mm. Admin weren't providing resources for her, right? Yeah. Uh, And so it's showing me also, and it's not just this example, right? We could do a laundry list of examples from not just us, but teachers of color across the country that so many white teachers are not fully competent if they can't even do this. Yeah. And they're constantly using you as like their encyclopedic source. Yeah. It's a huge burden. Yeah. I'm sorry for what this incident did to you and the harm it caused, but it's also fucking wild. And I think it's so fucking funny. Uh, I definitely <laughs> laughed immediately after it happened. Because I was like, this but, is absurd. Yeah. Can you remember any other incidents, like another, you know, letting our listeners hear in and any other memories you have of teaching where something similar happened? Yeah. I mean, a kind of less funny, less amusing one was... At our school, I found a bunch of documents in our shared Google Drive that had the N-word on them mm, and that were guiding. This. Yeah. And these documents, some of them were were supposed to be used to guide students in small group debates about whether or not it was appropriate to use the N-word. Yeah, that's pretty fucked up when you consider the student demographics at our school. Yeah, less than 4% black. Right. So you got one black kid in the room with a bunch of people sitting around saying, well, I think I should be able to say the N word if they can say the N word. Right. Like, what are we talking about? And so what I was seeing was materials painstakingly created that were going to formalize opportunities for students and teachers to harm black students in the room. Mm. And so I asked our department head about it and our department head asked me to lead a convo about it during a department meeting. How did you feel being put in this position of of having to basically now teach your entire department about this? I mean, I felt like it was going to cause a disruption of relationship with my colleagues by having to lead that conversation. And you were pretty new at the time. You just started, Extremely new. Extremely new at that school. I mean, obviously it interrupted my planning and prep time because now I'm having to put emotional and also like tangible time and energy into planning. For those that don't know, like the first month of teaching is like a special kind of hell. Exactly. And now I'm having to do this extra stuff 
to lead a meeting that I should I have no business leading. What interests me about listening to this story, in particular Mignon, is how the department head, pretty immediately after you expressed your hurt and anger at what you found, then proceeded to ask you to facilitate the conversation, yeah. basically making you the fix-it person for the department as well as the face attached to the disruption. I mean, I think she had to know that bringing this up bringing this issue to the department would be a point of conflict or contention and that her asking me to do it really meant that by doing this additional labor, I was going to be put in harm's way. You'd be the scapegoat. Exactly. And she said that I didn't have to do it if I didn't want to. And so I'll give a little bit of credit for that. But then she immediately followed that up with that she thought it would be important for this to come from me and that she wasn't sure how she could bring it forward. And so essentially... If you don't do it, it's not going to get done. She's giving herself an out from doing the work of a department head, mm -hmm. abdicating responsibility and putting me forward to, as you said, be the scapegoat. And I got an inkling then about who she was. And it was it was frustrating. It absolutely positioned me in the department as someone who can be a problem, mm -hmm. uh, someone who's nitpicky around race. Meanwhile, I was hearing from students about the harm that this caused. So once again, I was having to make a choice. Do I protect myself and keep the yeah. peace and all these things? Or do I stand up for students in the room who need me? Yeah, because I mean, I think that's a thing that you often see in education, this concept that, oh, debates help create nuance or create like gray area thinking. But the reality is like some things aren't up for debate. Exactly. When you put something like this up for debate, it makes people feel like they now have a right to decide something that isn't theirs to decide. Mm -hmm. But I've seen you do some similar kind of educating of colleagues when you felt compelled out of a necessity to, to support students. Can you talk about a time, you know, that stands out to you? Let me think on this real quick. Um, I think something that particularly comes in mind for me is during remote learning, when the Georgia spa shootings occurred. Mm -hmm. um, and, that you know, that was a really sad time. Absolutely. Um, and it particularly felt really weird because it was happening during the pandemic, during remote school. So we felt so isolated, I feel, all of us, especially the students. Um, and it was happening to the height of anti-Asian hate. Our school had a very large Asian-American student population. Over 50% of the student body was Asian. And I felt like this is a current events incident especially in the climate we're in that needs to be addressed in class. So I created a slideshow in which I honored those that were victimized, that were hurt, um, and that really went into the complex history of violence against Asian Americans in the United States. And I shared this and made it open with all the teachers at school. And, and even though it was extra labor for me, like considering our student demographic, I was really just thinking of them. I was like, this is important and we need to be talking and addressing this. Mm -hmm. And the part that made me really sad is students told me later that week that that day, even though I shared this out to the entire school, I was the only teacher they had mm -hmm. that even brought it up or talked about it. Not even borrowed my stuff or did anything on it. They didn't even bring it up. Yeah. And it was so disheartening to hear. That really is. And all of these experiences that we're chronicling are really just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many ways that teachers of color are faced with inequitable labor. We are asked to handle any programming related to our ethnicities. We're asked to mediate behavioral issues and student conflict. Students that oftentimes we don't even have. But we have the same racial background, so Like not even in clubs, okay? Yeah. Like it's just random. Literally, a kid I've never met, but principals and vice principals think, oh, well, you're black, you should go talk to this kid. Including when we don't have training to facilitate any kind of conversations. Yeah. We're also asked to provide additional resources, books that you've read, all this kind of stuff. Sometimes just in conversation with individual staff members and colleagues. And then sometimes 
sometimes, you know, it's actually codified. It's like, hey, can you do this for the library? Hey, can you do this for this professional development we're holding? Um, and what this shows is that school institutions really only see teachers of color as expendable labor. The inequitable workload teachers of color carry is further weighted by the relationship building with students of color that we alone are tasked with. And there's a false impression that creates this kind of inequity for teachers of color. And that's this idea that teachers of color are good at building relationships with students of color because we're the same race or because we're all people of color. But the truth is teachers of color build strong relationships with students because we're anti-oppressive and we model those values in ways that students can see and understand. We show students every day through our teaching, through our interpersonal interactions, that we will disrupt white supremacy on their behalf and in our own practice in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And some of the ways that we do that, some of the most important ways that we do that is through holding high expectations and providing mm -hmm. high supports. We're not doing that thing where we're saying, oh come from this disadvantaged background and you can just write this little sentence and that's fine. No. Like, you wrote a paragraph. Yay. Like, no. no we're we're, holding, I'm going to help you write an essay. Exactly. We're holding high expectations and we're supporting them to get there. So students know, hey, they see my potential. They see my intelligence. They see that I can do it and they believe that I can. And we're giving them actual real scaffolding. Exactly. We also hold ourselves accountable to students and we hold students accountable as well. And by doing that, we build this kind of multi-directional trust, right? And the final thing that I think is most important is the culturally sustaining curriculum that we develop, that we revise, and that we implement. Yeah. When these pieces come together, that's when students learn that we value all of who they are and that we can be trusted as their teachers and as adults in their lives. That's the thing that builds our relationships with students. It's not that this kid is Black and I'm Black, mm. right? It's the action. Do the work. They'll see the work. Exactly. And our life experiences can make it easier to get to some of that anti-oppressive work, to begin thinking about culturally sustaining curriculum. But that's partly because we know what it means to be disempowered. And, and right, you like if you grow up with racism and, and enduring racism, it often makes it easier for you to see it and to feel committed to disrupting it. But mm -hmm. it's not a guarantee. There are teachers of color that can also, in many ways, buy into the power structure and be committing harm as well and not unlearning or building these relationships. Well, and on the flip side, there are white teachers who do these things mm -hmm. and as a result, build extremely strong, extremely effective relationships with students, which further proves it's not about our racial background if we're seeing these white teachers do it. It's about the anti-oppressive, anti-racist work. Exactly, exactly. And I have seen you do this with students where you don't share the same background. I mean, I worked with you so closely and I have seen you build these incredibly strong and supportive relationships with students. What have been your strategies? I'm thinking of one student in particular. I think once I start talking, you'll know who. Mm -hmm. But at the beginning of the school year, uh, I remember we did not necessarily get along. I felt like I was getting a lot of defensiveness, a lot of resistance from this person. And my gut was telling me I had this theory that, you know, it was because I was Asian and the student was Black. 
later on, a couple months on the road, like, he would verify. He's like, yeah, that was it. Oh, I remember <laughs> this kid, yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah, straight up, that was it. Uh-huh. Um, and at the time, I remember talking to you about it, like, I wasn't even affronted or offended. Mm-hmm. I get it. The history between Asian Americans and the Black community in this country has just been so complex. And I get it. Anti-Blackness is so real in the Asian community. If this kid has noticed that or been harmed by that, like, I get his initial reaction. And so I just kind of stuck to my lane. I kept designing and implementing culturally sustaining curriculum, which I often think of as how do we make sure that we don't harm and also how do we make sure we disrupt at every point that we can. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the things that I always do as an English language teacher is always unpacking English as a language of domination, really just analyzing this complex and bloody history with students. Mm-hmm. So it's curriculum like this that I would just keep on pounding. I would hold myself accountable for mistakes I made in front of the classroom. I would hold this student accountable if things were done that harmed students around him. And I actually feel like doing that helped build this multi-directional trust, you know, that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. When it came to discussing a lot of the anti-Asian hate crimes that were happening in the community at the time, like I was really upfront about addressing anti-Blackness in the Asian community, about unpacking model minority myth with a class that had a lot of Asian American students. I mean, mm-hmm. I think he saw that. By the end of that year, yeah. because I would be in your classroom sometimes, he was working, he was learning, he had really positive relationship with you. Yeah, I will say I think working with him also on like the academic support, really mm-hmm. helping him foster his skills, I think was another big part of it. Mm-hmm. We left the school and I'll be honest, when that time came, like, it was at a point where he was like, ride or die for me. Like, I will ride at dawn for you, Miss V. I was like, thank you. He had your back. Yeah. But, you know, in comparison to other teachers, what makes me really sad is, you know, with the student, they they didn't do what I did. I know a lot of colleagues who made him either hyper-invisible, always exclaiming out loud, why is he out of class? And they really gave up on him academically. Absolutely. And you did that work with him. But other teachers didn't, right? So again, this is going right back to that additional burden of labor that teachers of color have. Mm -hmm. And I think what this shows is that white teachers really believe that you need to share the similar background in order to build relationships with students, which makes it easy for them to then foist the responsibility on a teachers of color. It's an easy excuse for white teachers to not have to do anti-oppressive work because they remove themselves from the equation from the very beginning. No, no teacher is perfect, us included, certainly. But when some white teachers remove a whole sphere of responsibility, that's creating additional labor for teachers of color, and that's a problem. We've been talking about inequitable workload, but how much of this do you think, Pignon, is actually voluntary? I feel like you're asking about kind of our feelings of responsibility. Oh, like if whether or not our feelings of responsibility push us to do this? Mm-hmm. I mean, partially. I'm also wondering, though, like, do you ever feel co- coerced? I mean, I definitely feel pressure. And I see my white teacher colleagues without that pressure, particularly when I think about what I was like as a new teacher in that experience. You know, new white teachers got to just come into the school to teach, to work with their mentors. You know, school administrators, the principals and vice principals were literally advising new teachers not to be advisors of clubs and not to participate in committees in all these ways. Meanwhile, they were putting sometimes silent, sometimes not very silent pressure on you and I as teachers of color to take on these kinds of roles. Yeah, often mixed signals. It's not always silent. 
I remember one administrator literally criticizing me for being an advisor while two other administrators were asking around if I would be willing to take on an additional advisor role for Asian students and join committees and clubs. Okay, I don't know if you know this, but one of our vice principals came to me to try to get me to convince you oh, shut to be. Up. Yes. That's so funny. Like, why would they come to you? They said, we know you colors are friends. <laughs> Go convince Quinn to advise Asian <laughs> club. Oh my God, I didn't know that. That's actually so funny. Yep. Often, as a new teacher, the advice you're getting from veterans is don't take on all these additional responsibilities. But while they're giving this advice supposedly out to all teachers, we're receiving really different expectations as teachers of color. Mm-hmm. It almost seems like they're also insinuating, what was the point of hiring you if you're not going to take all of this on? Yeah. And the result is we're neglected and we're overworked. Mm-hmm. We're tokenized. Like, if you think about it, tokenization is really just a fancy way to say you're being taken advantage of. This is forced labor. Oh, so true. It's unpaid. So often our feelings of responsibility to students are wrapped up in it. But there are also real, tangible external pressures from the school, especially because all of these asks are based on our racial identities and nothing else. It can be incredibly frustrating, but also That's that connection to students piece, right? We're being asked this because I'm Black, because you're Asian. And so we also know that that means that white teachers aren't going to be asked. So if we don't do it, it's just not going to happen and students lose out. Yeah, and there's also also a sense of kind of a threat hanging over you, especially if you're a new teacher. The first few years are probationary. You can be let go for any reason. Um, They don't have to state that reason. And so it feels like these administrators, people who have power over your livelihood, it feels like you need to be doing this because why would they keep you if they could just hire someone else who would? Mm. As a teacher of color, it really feels as if you are nothing but the labor they can exploit from you. So what happens when teachers of color are holding this inequitable workload? Teachers of color have less time and less energy to build curriculum, less time to lesson plan, less time to develop effective differentiation and accommodations, less time to be thoughtful about student groupings, less time to create and provide constructive feedback, less time to grade. And all of this, all of this leads to less effective curriculum. I, mean, I really feel you on the thoughtful about student groupings. I mean, you got students be beefing. You gotta, you, I'm just saying, <laughs> part of being a teacher is keeping certain people separated. <laughs> There's also an emotional tax of working with people who show us and students that they don't give a fuck about us, other teachers of color, or kids of color. And it can really build a sense of resentment and devaluation. You know, and all of this can cause... Poor physical and mental health. I got TMJ. Okay. They said it was due to stress. And it never went away (laughs) until I left the school. (laughs) And, you know, all of this comes together and creates these blocks that prevents teachers of color from being fully engaged and fully present for the students that we serve. We are overworked to the point of breaking. A teacher named Erin Castillo said that calling what teachers face burnout is basically gaslighting teachers because what we're facing is beyond burnout. She said, this isn't on the individual. We are being set up to fail at this point. When the system does not allow for success, we are being demoralized. And we want to make clear that what Castillo says is true for all teachers, but for teachers of color, it's worse by tenfold. 
So what happens when this goes beyond burnout? What happens when teachers of color realize we've been set up to fail? We leave and students are left with high teacher of color turnover rate and fewer and fewer people in the building who are committed to the anti-oppressive work that is necessary to support students of color. Thank you for joining us as we explore how education is failing teachers of color. We believe education can serve all, not just the few. We envision schools as sites of possibility in education as radical care for community. If this episode sparks something for you, email us at diseducationpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at DisEdOfficial. Check out the poll in our bio or in the show notes. Subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Finally, Thank you to Anthony Hernandez at The Grill Studio for engineering this episode. And thank you for listening. Next time, join us for a special guest interview. See you next class.